I'd like to have Gator if it would be all right. Certainly. Gator, see to it that Miss Davenport is well taken care of. Ooh, Gator, I've heard so much about you. Could someone run and get me a double egg salad on white toast? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Colerill Lane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 93, which is Cole's Choice. I'm guessing you picked some perennial seasonal favorite? The answer to that is yes. A resounding yes in the absolute trashiest way possible, because I have chosen Female Trouble from 1974. Written, produced, shot, and directed, and then some, by our beloved Pope of Trash, John Waters. It stars a number of his usual players, collectively known as the Dreamlanders, including Divine, Mink Stoll, David Lockery, Mary Vivian Pierce, Edith Massey, and Cookie Mueller. The synopsis? Spoiled schoolgirl, Don Davenport, as portrayed by Divine, runs away from home, gets pregnant while hitchhiking, and ends up as a fashion model for a couple of salon owners intent on melding beauty and crime. Now, this is our first real foray into, and I say this with as much admiration and affection as I can muster, trash cinema. Before we get started, tell me and the audience a little bit about your experiences with or general impressions of that. I think any preconceived notion I had was turned on its ear by seeing this film and then just reading so many interviews with John Waters. I have probably pretty limited exposure to quote-unquote trash cinema. I imagine that it's something that's going to leave me feeling grimy after or during I'm watching it. If you're lucky. Yes. You know, I think Rex Reed said it best. (laughs) As he did so many things. He was actually quoted on the movie poster. Sex offenses that would shock the Marquis de Sade. So I would assume I'm going to get some of that. I'm going to see a section of the population I don't necessarily rub elbows with all the time. And that probably the production values may leave something to be desired. None of those things are bad things. I have to also say that. I was going to say, is that pretty much how you would define it for the uninitiated? Or is it more a case of, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it? I hate to align myself with that Supreme Court justice, but I think that that seems reasonable. Well, just for clarity's sake, some people might think when we say trash that we just mean a generally poorly made film. In the context of this conversation, though, it's quite different from that. It's not just bad movies. It's not just good bad movies. The intent to me seems wholly different. Bad films still work within societal norms. For the most part, they're trying to fit somewhere in the grand scheme of, quote, normal, unquote, movies. And they could be genre pictures that know their limitations, or they could be actual attempts to replicate what we recognize as good movies that just fail. But there is nothing truly subversive about them, which I think is the big difference. Trash goes beyond all of that. It's deliberately provocative. It has its own aesthetic, even when it's having no aesthetic. It's deranged. It's often cheap. 
most importantly, it's unlike anything else you've ever seen. You get the feeling that everyone involved had no choice but to make it. Their lives would not allow them to do anything else. And I know that you're not a fan of a specific type of grotesquerie, and this film does not have the same notorious reputation as something like Pink Flamingos, for instance. But it does have the acid burn scars and things like that. In anticipation of watching this, was there anything that you were dreading? I know you well enough, and you know me well enough, that I assumed that if there was something like the most notorious scene in Pink Flamingos, that you would have told me in advance. So I definitely wasn't dreading anything. I harbored instead a secret feeling, I didn't even want to say it out loud, that this film might be the thing that I ended up deriving the most pure pleasure from this entire year. So it lived up to expectations then? It exceeded all expectations. This is a bright, shining beacon in a sea of hopelessness. That was one of the most interesting things that you said to me before we actually got down to the viewing, that the most perverse elements of it were what you look forward to the absolute most. And that's when I knew you were absolutely on the right wavelength through this thing, that safe and normal is boring. Well, I think if there was anything that we were just generally trepidatious about, it's that comedy is hard to talk about, or at least it feels like it is to us. Humor sometimes feels so much more subjective and unique to the individual than what might move us dramatically. And sometimes it's hard to examine that without the pitfall of the show just becoming, remember when this happened? That was funny. Because this film, more than anything in recent memory, is just chock full from second to second with the most memorable, quotable quotes ever created. Fortunately, in addition to that, there's also a lot more to sink our teeth into. So let's get to it. The film itself is broken down into the various stages in the life of Don Davenport. Youth, career girl, early criminal, married life, five years later, and then all the way up to her glorious final speech in the electric chair. But we're introduced to Dawn and her obsession with cha-cha heels and her friends in high school. And you should know what you are in for right away. I love these early John Waters movies because everything is right on the table from the word go. Subtlety has no place here. Everything in this universe is so perfectly absurd. And these students are no exception. These are some of the most gloriously ragged high schoolers I have ever seen. We're definitely feeling some 50s-era juvenile delinquent movie influences. I do want to point out that I came to John Waters much later. The first film of his that I saw was Hairspray, and that was when I was about 13 years old. So I didn't get the early John Waters, which this is definitely one of those. So as I'm watching this action unfold, I definitely got the sense that I'm watching a relative newcomer still working. There's not a lot of opportunity to move the camera. There aren't a bunch of setups, for example. You're not going to see multiple points of view in a scene. It all strikes me, and I do, again, mean this with the utmost affection, especially when it comes to David Lockery's line readings, that we are watching the filthiest high school play ever put on. It is so incredibly charming at the same time. It doesn't feel like a rank amateur. It doesn't feel like somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. It feels more that it's driven by budget and time, for example, that sense that we can only decorate one section of this wall, so everybody needs to stand in front of this. 
I think my favorite part, though, is that we get the regional feeling right away. You know where we are, and it's one of my favorite places ever. Do you know where we are? <laughs> We're in Balmer, hon. We certainly are. We are in school, as a matter of fact, receiving a lesson on Baltimore history, naturally. And it's in this scene that we see the seed of one of the defining themes of the film for me. And that's rebellion of a very particular type. Kicking back against the dull, stultifying omnipresence and authority of the square, straight world. Taken as a whole, it's a very gentle type of rebellion. It's essentially marginalized kids saying, we're not hurting anyone. Can't we just have room to be ourselves and have this not be a problem? Even with some of the most absurd violence and anarchy in his films, I tend to generally think of John Waters as a very gentle person. You don't assemble, and more specifically, loyally maintain a group like the Dreamlanders if you're not, if you don't have a nurturing wing for them to flourish under. He knows that you have to have humor with your revolution. Even with that, though, you still need an outlet for your dark desires, so thank heavens for Divine, who functioned as the rampaging id to Waters' ego. Divine should have won every Oscar ever created in every single category in every year. Before we get too far away from this scene, I did want to point something out. There is a great detail in this classroom scene that I do not want to forget. She gets snitched on by one of her classmates. Don Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich. I love this proto Coen Brothers specificity in terms of diction. It's really great comic writing, and that reveals itself when you reverse engineer it. It's not Don eating. It's not Don eating a sandwich. It's Don is eating a meatball sandwich. And when you say the other options out loud, like I just did, you realize that, yes, it's the addition of meatball specifically that makes it the funniest. Try it. Watercress. Roast beef. Muffaletta. You hear those in your head. Only bologna comes close. And especially when you say only bologna. It really does either show great instinct or craft. And I think stand-up comics, for instance, would really gravitate to this point. You run the same jokes every night again and again. You're fine-tuning them, listening to how crowds respond, and you just know Meatball is the best, funniest choice. Now, the big burning question for Christmas is, will Dawn get her cha-cha heels? Do you know specifically what cha-cha heels are? I have a vision in my head of what they are. I assumed it was for doing the cha-cha, but also sort of the ones that don't have backs to them. Well, I learned specifically from John Waters that the heels are not nearly as high as you might think they are. And he tells a funny story. He tells so many funny stories about zeroing in on that detail and how he actually had to teach drag queens how to live. We are transported to the suburban Davenport home, which was a real location, by the way. They did not have to change any of the decorations in the house. Well, Christmas Day comes, and Dawn's dreams are dashed because, as her dad says, nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. And all hell breaks loose. Is there any scene between parent and child at any point in this movie that isn't complete chaos? It's wonderful. I will also point out that there are more fuck-yous in this movie than <laughs> one-man force, and that's saying something. Dawn's mother is crushed under the Christmas tree, and Dawn is stomping on presents like Godzilla. A Christmas tree did actually once fall on John Waters' grandmother, by the way. <laughs> oh, God. He says he slightly exaggerated that for the movie. He also proposes that it should be an annual tradition. 
<laughs> I totally agree. Thank you, John. She can't take it. She's been pushed beyond her limits. No cha-cha heels. So she runs away. Now, she's got nothing with her, so she's forced to hitchhike. Where she's planning to go, I'm not sure. But of course, the road is peopled with nothing but horrible perverts. Provincetown. And now this is Divine in a dual role, <laughs> playing the pervert that picks up Dawn. A dual role for the ages. It is, because this is the grossest pervert among gross perverts, and he rapes her on the side of the road on an old, dirty, disgusting mattress, and it is as gross as it possibly can be. Technically rapes himself, which has to be a cinema first, and only. There's a great story about Divine in his drag act when hecklers would yell, well, go fuck yourself, he would say, I already did. We should mention that Don also picks his pocket mid-romp. I miss that detail. I could see why. Maybe you were watching through your fingers over your eyes. I was probably also covering my ears to not hear the slurping noises. <laughs> now, the action in this film moves at a blistering pace, so she is pregnant. She calls up this guy, wants money. She's living in a flop house, and she's forced to give birth alone on a dirty, disgusting couch, still with her scarf on, covering her hair. So say hello to her daughter, Taffy. Another perfect choice of phrase. This birth scene is completely absurd. We may have to retire Absurd's jersey up into the rafters after this as many times as it's going to get used here. How do you think this would play... To the average person on the street. Well, I do want to mention here that that was an actual newborn baby. <laughs> John Waters convinced a friend of his to allow them to take the baby, newly born, covered in some ketchup, and all of this was filmed while the grandmother of the newborn walked in to the filming. Imagine what she thought. Appalled? Disturbed? Terrified? Who knows? I'm just going to go on record here as saying there's a lot of weird stuff happening out there all the time. Some of it being done by people that you think you know well. Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> Do you have a specific example you're going to share? I've got a couple. And I just say, get a pizza delivery job. You'll see it. I saw things that you wouldn't believe way back when. Probably my favorite customer was a guy and his quote-unquote friend. I don't know the particulars of their relationship. I never asked but he lived in what had to be a condemned house. There was nothing in the living room but a mattress, in the whole house as far as I know, because I actually never got beyond that room, that he sat on all the time. He looks a lot like the younger guy from The Greasy Strangler, is what he physically reminds me of. And his little friend always stood back out of the way as if he wasn't allowed to talk. And he would brusquely pay me, and I would be on my way. He ordered from us all the time, though. So you had multiple opportunities to observe whatever was possibly going on. Probably three times a week, and it was always the same every time. The thing I most like to imagine is that the little guy was standing there patiently waiting and biding his time so that as soon as I leave, he could feed him. I really wish you had not filled <laughs> in that last supposition. There was also another delivery job that I had. It was office supplies in this case, and for that I drove a Dodge van, so I was up higher than the average car. I could see down into people's cars, and I pulled up to a stoplight once and happened to look over into the car next to me, and the guy in that car was just jerking it to beat the band. <laughs> he must have felt my gaze because he looked up at me, 
looked me square in the eye like he thought about it for a second and just shrugged like, eh, what are you going to do? He must have felt my gaze, the beginning of many a wonderful <laughs> short story. And then he went right back to work on it. <laughs> and we each drove on and went on with our day. Point is, there's a lot happening out there that you just don't know about. We quickly moved through the career girl phase because the working world is not exactly for Don Davenport. It's probably most notable for the fact that in this sequence, everything and everyone in sight is stained somehow, has stains on it somewhere. She quickly goes from waitress to stripper to sex worker to mugger. I want to jump in here for one second, not because this is the first example of how truly amazing the costuming and makeup are. That's Van Smith doing both of those things. But this, this wonderful section, especially when we have the hooker thieves in their belly shirts and the netting over their giant bouffants. <laughs> his work here is truly amazing. I don't know, because I can't find any specific record of it, if Divine's costumes in particular were built or bought. They are just exceptional. And... On purpose, I think, Dawn is the person who is not stained. She is immaculate. Whether it's stomach in full view, butt crack in full view, <laughs> or crotch in full view. These are exceptional works of art. I would love to see just an exhibition of Divine's costumes from this film. So we are well into our Don Davenport early criminal phase. And this is also our first glimpse of Taffy since her birth. And she's about nine years old here, skipping rope, singing annoying songs at the top of her lungs, and just generally wrecking the joint. Full-on bad seed mode <laughs> here. I want to talk about how every family scene is chaos. We're going to talk a lot about how this movie and Waters' entire raison d'etre are about subverting the norm, but I'm not sure that this element qualifies exactly. I could make the argument that familial dysfunction is so widespread as to be the norm, and it certainly isn't uncommon for a child to distance themselves from everything they perceive that their parents are as a necessary step to establish their own identity. So this part, to me, feels more like an exaggeration, certainly, but not a subversion, exactly. I'm going to disagree slightly okay. here with you. I think the subversion is the treatment of the mother, He's clearly playing on that Mildred Pierce style of mother is martyr. I've yelled at her. I've beaten her with a car, Ariel. I don't know what else I can do. Exactly. It's hilarious. And also, there's something incredibly biting here. One of the characters, I can't remember if it's Chicklet or Concetta, who says, I'm glad I had an abortion. That's 1974, just to remind everybody. Okay, so maybe a little subversive. Yeah, I think so. Well, Chicklet and Concetta are consoling Dawn, and let's talk a little bit about their beauty aesthetic here, because they suggest to her to get her hair done to make her feel better. And this is a very specific substrata of glamour, and it's directly inspired by that famous Diane Arbus photograph of a young Brooklyn family on a Sunday outing. Again, I'm going to make the argument, and you may poke holes in it, but I don't think this is so much a subversion as it is an exaggeration again. It's only a slight exaggeration in this case... When you look at that photo and you realize that young woman is not that far from divine in terms of how her look would fit right in with Chicklet and Cassetta's less extreme example. 
So, so many of these things are straight from the world that Waters inhabited and alternately struggled against and was amused by. You mentioned that the Davenport family home, that's someone's house. The only thing he added was the tree and that salon was already there. It just needed some dreamlanders to populate it. I think the best example comes later on. And we're going to talk about it when we get there, too, because it's just too delightful to pass up. But it's when Dawn is having her triumphant dance down the street. And the fact that all these people on the street, filmed without their knowledge, do not give her a second look speaks volumes to me. You find that to be accurate? It reflects your experience with Baltimore? Yeah, I do. Well, speaking of Baltimore, we have a couple of doozies coming up next. The next two characters to enter the fray are hairstylist Gator, with his pronounced Balmer accent, and his aunt Ida, who is about one step from Roseanne Barr, it feels like. I had to think about that for a second and weigh that in my mind, and I think you're 100% correct. And I do mean a step in the correct direction. Yes, a step away from what she is now to something much more fabulous. Ida is loudly lamenting the fact that Gator is not gay. She wants him to be Nelly, as she says. But he protests that he's straight. And so now we finally get down to the pointed and downright hilarious subversion. Queers are just better, she says. She worries that he'll get married and work in an office and celebrate wedding anniversaries, which is all boring, sick, and heterosexual. Oh my god, she just described my life. It's a bold thing to do in 1974, to turn that language back against the straight community and give them a taste of their own medicine. In a perfect world, I think. The squares went to see this and thought, hmm, that's what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that, and then thought, better of doing that sort of thing ever again. But let's be real. The people that most needed that message probably never saw female trouble. Agreed. And I think boring is the best description. And the one that we should be the most frightened of. It's the biggest condemnation. And I think you're right as well. Probably the people who should have heard that message didn't. And as usual, John Waters said it best that you can only change people's minds with humor. The comedy of it is clearly why it's included here, I think. Because Waters knew that his audience would both know how funny this is and take a bit of comfort in it. He's taking matters into his own hands and creating a universe where they hold the keys where they are the norm and they're desired and they have nothing to fear. It's no small achievement to make people feel like there is a place for them in the world with your art. I love that John Waters talks about his early audiences being angry audiences. They hated peace and love, they were sick of it and all of that bullshit, and they wanted something else. Well, they definitely got something else. And to feel better, Dawn visits the hair salon, and this place is out of control. It turns out the owners, Donald and Donna Dasher, are auditioning clients because it is an exclusive place that caters to ravishing beauties only. For such an exclusive place, I love how the reception desk phone is a wall-mounted payphone. Is there anyone particularly appalling to see today? Just about everyone. But they pick on certain types in particular. Again, subverting every norm. A girl is immediately disqualified for working at the telephone company. So your traditional beauty norms and your straight 9-to-5 world is again held up for ridicule. And they realize Dawn is something special. How could you not? And she wins the audition and wants to celebrate with a double egg salad on white toast. Maybe the thing that made me laugh the absolute hardest, though that's really hard to narrow down. 
Another biting detail here, she talks about that she wants to be famous. And that will play out writ large throughout the rest of the movie. And unfortunately, we're still held hostage by people like that today. This fortuitous salon visit is actually Dawn's transition into married life, because on this trip, she meets Gator. They begin a whirlwind romance and get married, much to Ida's chagrin. And that's the beginning of those two women becoming bitter enemies. So cut to five years later, and Dawn is becoming disillusioned with married life, the drudgery, Gator's sexual proclivities. Can't we do it normal, she asks. This is normal, he says, while he shoves a carrot in her mouth. I love all the inherent contradictions in this scene. What do you think Dawn thinks of as normal, and why does she want it? Honestly, I can't even begin to imagine because he's reading a magazine or there are needle-nose pliers involved, the aforementioned carrot. I guess something that involves some sort of connection, but that just seems absurd that I'm even saying that. I'm assuming she's referring to being in one of her most fabulous costumes with her hair perfectly done and then riding his face, I guess. Or she also gets to smoke a cigarette at the same time. I like to imagine that what she wants is something that she saw Liz Taylor doing in a magazine spread somewhere. That makes the most sense. It comes down to the fact that what a person likes is what they think is normal, and there truly is no normal. Sex is maybe the only thing possibly more unique to the individual and idiosyncratic than humor is. And I should clarify, I know John Waters knows this, even if Don Davenport doesn't. And now in walks my second favorite character. Oh and my that's. God. My favorite, hands down. Okay. Well, I don't know. Dawn is a hard act to follow, but we've got Mink Stoll as young Taffy, but of course she's an adult playing Taffy. Right. She's supposed to be 14, which they point out by saying, you're for 14, you don't look so good. But she's actually being played by someone who's in her early 20s, I would guess. I said earlier that Divine should win every Oscar ever. Mink Stoll is amazing in this. She's so incredibly funny. She's so incredibly sharp. She manages to be photographed really well at the same time. <laughs> I don't know how that's possible, but truly, she is wonderful. Yeah, I have to say, I am totally on Mink Stoll's wavelength. Divine may be the supernova of the Dreamlander universe, but Mink Stoll is the secret weapon here. Her comic timing, the way she laughs maniacally as she stomps up the stairs, the way she punches certain words, everything she does hits me just right. She has great instincts and that delivery, calling the dashers ham bones, telling the gator, go listen to some folk music, hippie. Taffy rules. She does, and I love that she is the outlet here for that hippie hatred. It's very much welcome. Well, she interrupts them in the middle of their rutting to come in and ask for some money. <laughs> And we're treated to our first of two extreme penis close-ups. Waters is <laughs> definitely yeah. making a statement with this, I think. Oh, God. It's very deliberate, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's pretty deliberate. <laughs> it just sort of rests there for us to gaze upon. We can spend an entire episode or more on this alone. How it potentially reflects Waters' preference in erotic material why nudity is considered shocking, even though we all have bodies, how women's bodies are used to sell films in a way that's completely different from men's, why a penis on its own is such a confrontational image, how seldom you actually see that. What was your instinctive reaction to that insert shot? 
it's none of those things. It was more <laughs> about just how kind of absurd the penis looks at rest. I felt like it was played for fun. Oh, he's definitely having fun with it, but he's having fun with it by putting it directly in our faces on the big screen. Imagine that 20 feet high. Another reason why I'm avoiding pink flamingos <laughs> or other of his films that include sphincters. Aside from that particular provocation, I think the other interesting thing that comes out of this scene is that return of the theme I mentioned earlier, the curse of the daughter turning out like the mother. Taffy is every bit the demanding brat that Dawn was, just about different things in a different way. Their constant battling made me think a lot about how these things tend to skip a generation. Dawn wants excitement. Taffy just wants a regular life. We do have to qualify that her idea of regular includes spending all your allowances on props to play car accident, like broken windshields to scatter over the living room. But still, she might be happier with Dawn's parents, her grandparents. It seems like there are some pretty textbook things underneath all of these exaggerated observations about family, whether they're intentional or just things that Waters absorbed growing up. He does say often, in his own way, he's a traditionalist. I think about Dawn having been coddled as being possibly one of her problems, and then, of course, Taffy's is all based on sheer neglect and abuse. Which is hilarious. It sure is. Dawn gets an offer here from the Dashers to get into show business, which is all she's ever dreamed of, to be a glamorous guinea pig, posing for unusual shots, photos of her committing crimes, all to test their philosophy that crime enhances one's beauty. It's an idea that Waters became fixated on, crime is beauty, when he visited Tex Watson, Manson family member, in prison. This film is actually dedicated to Watson. At the very beginning, in the opening credits, we actually see a model helicopter that Watson made for Waters. And I don't know about you, but that is a bit of a provocation. I was a bit surprised to see that. But I think it's interesting that he comments upon his own fixation with the Manson family. That's something that both you and I share. His fascination with crime in general echoes mine to a great degree. It pricks my ears up on more than one occasion in the film because... Who, aside from John Waters, is going to have a character say something like, Remember Alice Crimmins? I'm even more delighted by John Waters the more that I read about him. And the older he gets, he is intent on reflecting upon what he thought when he was younger, what he did when he was younger. And he definitely says now that he regrets doing that. He regrets and feels guilty about using the Manson family and the murders in a jokey, smart-ass way, not thinking about the victims' families, the lives of the Manson family killer kids, because he's, if nothing else, never mean-spirited, and I feel like deals with things in a humane way. That's what he feels his work is about. And completely separate of this film, before I saw it, I read about what he has been doing for a number of years to try to help Leslie Van Houten, who was one of the Manson family. He's talked about realizing that she is the sort of person, if she had gone a different way, she could have been one of the Dreamlanders. Just one of his friends, somebody great to hang out with. And the most chilling thing is, and I think very wryly observed, just be glad your kid never met Manson. Well, he certainly seems to have a great deal of genuine empathy for people. And he walks that walk when it comes to 
rehabilitation and redemption, whether or not you think that those people actually deserve those opportunities. You see the same thing in his relationship with Patty Hearst, even though what she did isn't as severe as those examples. And so maybe it is the move of a relatively immature young man, young filmmaker, to make this easy move. If subversion is the goal, subversion of the norm, what is more subversive than crime? And it ties directly back to what Donna Dasher says. I think it's also all about escaping this prison of boredom, either as perpetrator or even just a spectator. So Don and the Dashers enter into this agreement. They're going to make history. They're going to make art. And another great moment that I don't want to gloss over before we move on from here. There's a beautiful shot of Dawn as she is exiting the salon and then she turns back to some unseen person and just says, shut up, as she walks away. <laughs> it is divine, distilled down to his essence. In the meantime, Ida is still hitting all the key points of her stump speech. If they're smart, they're queer. If they're stupid, they're straight. And she's trying to set Gator up on dates with men. All I could really think about, though, in this scene was, is her house falling off of its foundation? It doesn't seem like it's an intentionally Dutch angle, but I feel like I'm about to slide right out of the frame the whole time. Yeah, I definitely think the floor was sloping and that was not an intentional set decoration. Or gosh, maybe it was. But they filmed in abandoned or condemned buildings when they could, so that seems appropriate. Well, Gator's had enough of all this. He is out of here. I want to move to Detroit to be closer to the auto industry. To which... Aunt Ida pitches a fit. Now, what do you imagine Water's direction to Edith Massey was when she was rolling around on the floor screaming, Gator, no! I'm assuming it's something like, remember when we met in that dive bar that you were working in? Just do that same thing that you did when they wouldn't give you your last paycheck. I must say, I absolutely love how every single line is delivered with either the utmost flair or even just the knowledge that they might never get the chance to do this again, so they're going for it. The glee and abandon that everyone participates with is magnificent. I'm thinking again about something that John Waters said about pink flamingos, that basically the making of that film was practically a crime. They are taking every last chance. This may have been the last thing that they ever made. Well, speaking of crimes... Here comes another one. One comes along about every five minutes. Don has Taffy destroy all of Gator's belongings, and she gets him fired from his prestigious position at the salon. So Gator drops by the house and straight punches Don right in the face. Now, I laughed really hard at this, taken by surprise by it. Did you? I guffawed at this, partially because of something that you said in a completely unrelated podcast that we happen to be guests on. It is never not funny when someone punches someone else and then turns and walks away. And there are certainly no repercussions for his actions. And at the same time, we, you and I specifically, I don't think are laughing because domestic violence is funny, and I don't think John Waters is telling us to laugh at domestic violence. No, I definitely don't think so to either one of those things. So in retrospect, though, how do you feel about laughing out loud at that? Great. <laughs> and I'd do it again. Well, you can guess, I'm sure, how I feel when it comes to John Waters, especially someone who's so good at it. There is literally no subject that is off limits when you tell the joke the right way. If you know it's going to be an exercise in extreme bad taste and you know the whole point of the exercise is to put something offensive 
to God-fearing families on screen every five minutes, I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever to say all of these lines are okay to cross, but not this one. In for a penny, in for a pound, right? It's like the Dashers say, excitement is not always clean. Speaking of the Dashers, they're invited over to Dawn's for a wonderful dinner party, a supper buffet, and then of course all hell breaks loose because it's going to one way or the other. There's not enough spaghetti for Taffy. They have a great big fight. She throws the entire bowl against the wall. My absolute favorite moment is Dawn pausing before hitting Taffy over the head with a chair to get her photo taken. That pause mid-swing when she is smashing Taffy with the chair, that's significant because the Dashers are here to talk about her career as a criminal fashion model. At this point in history, I think, we can probably shelve the idea that anyone predicted, quote, the rise of the reality television era. I'm probably guilty of perpetuating that cliche myself. So I am officially going to retire it, or at least my use of it, right now, because it is nothing new. Here in 1974, you referred to it already. Dawn says, I love having my picture taken. I want to be famous. She lives for her idea of celebrity. It's what sustains her. You could just as easily find someone who wanted that same thing in 1874, I think. It's not reality television, it's just reality, going back long before there ever was television. And I do love this scene, it is spectacular. In addition to the things that you already described, it's packed full of memorable dialogue. We rarely eat any form of noodle dawn. And then, as often happens in these scenes, when you think things have already reached a crescendo, a fever pitch, something else happens that just completely pushes it over the top. And that's Aunt Ida storming in to throw acid <laughs> on Dawn's face. Ripped straight from the headlines, by the way. And it certainly doesn't stop the picture taking. It only enhances <laughs> the experience. Because this tableau is a squalid masterpiece. Blood, spaghetti, filth. They at least pause the photo shoot for a moment to then actually take Dawn to the hospital. At the hospital, we meet Don's doctor, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this interaction. Do his instructions make sense to you? Does it seem like he's the only reasonable person in the entire film? I think yes and no, because he's advocating, rather than what the Dashers want to do, which is slap some makeup on her, that she needs to see a plastic surgeon. And yet at the same time, there's also a voice for a third option, which is to do nothing, just let her heal, and her face can be what her face is. Classic Erica Long strategy, yes and no. You circumvented my trick, because it's a litmus test. Because if you think this doctor makes sense, you're the opposition. Because this is just another in a long line of square authority figures trying to lay a bunch of rules on you. I've long maintained that doctors are nothing but a racket, and I make a standing offer to anyone. Get an estimate from your doctor. Whatever you're having done, I'll do it for half. You already have the Swiss Army knife. Got everything I need. Okay, I'm only half kidding. Seriously, though, there is really an element of this gathering at the hospital that I truly love, and it's the idea of making your own family. The way this group of outsiders found each other and operates with such solidarity and support, it's beautiful. Which of your lines that her friends voice are your favorites? I know I love, it's just like an art opening. That is exactly the one I wrote down. I also wrote down, I wish it happened to me. And <laughs> I'm getting a hard on. 
Okay, I take it back. Maybe yeah, that's my favorite. That's got to be the best one. They do act like her scarred face is the most beautiful thing they've ever seen, even though, and this is important, she doubts it. I know there is probably some level of exploitation in what the Dashers are doing, but if you look beneath that and you look beneath all this exaggeration, there's a really sweet lesson to be learned about how you're not alone, you just need to find your people. And some of your people just coincidentally might have hard-ons. <laughs> God. But let's, do the, let's do the whole show just about that scene. We could pick anything in this movie and do that. It's hard enough not to just reenact the whole thing. Truly. Can we just quit everything and do a two-person show of this? I think we'd be best suited to be the Dashers, actually. Speaking of the Dashers, questionable motives and all, they take Don home and surprise her with what they've been doing the whole time she was in the hospital. They built a little stage in her house for her to perform on. They shoot her up with liquid eyeliner, and she proceeds to engage in a red-hot cover session of posing for them. Earlier on, the Dashers are very clear that this entire scheme, this setup, is not about pornography. They're really kind of horrified by the idea. They don't enjoy the idea or the act of sex is the implication. Well, they picked the wrong subject because Don Davenport is overflowing with sensuality. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting to look at that practically asexual idea for this entire setup. Whereas Dawn is voluminous. She is overflowing with the feminine ideal, at least in her mind. And I'm thinking about our mini conversation about why are penises taking place in this film. So it's yet another voice of subversion, I think, from John Waters. Another point of view. Well, the absurdities just keep piling up because the crowning touch of their remodel of her place is that they have captured Ida and put her in a big white birdcage. And to get revenge, Dawn chops her hand off with an axe. I really love how everyone and everything is fair game for John Waters, even the things he has an obvious fondness for. He takes shots at the fashion crowd, the art crowd, basically anyone that might have an air of self-importance. And the whole aim is to elevate the marginalized and take a little bit of air out of everyone else. He talks about in those early days, he wasn't even part of an underground, really, because no one would pay attention to him because he was from Baltimore. So even the New York underground were snobs in comparison. If you don't want to hang out with John Waters, you are missing such a good time. Warhol must have been a dope. That's the first person that my mind went to. I think about that regularly. I have that mantra painted somewhere. Warhol must have been a dope. Well, to my great delight here, Taffy bursts in again, and she is demanding to know who her real father is. So Don gives her the pertinent information and sends her on her way. Because again, even if there is a chopped off hand on the floor, life is still going on. So Taffy makes her way out to whatever coal mining shack he's living in. I don't know about you, but this whole trek to see her father gave me flashbacks of Barbara Loden and Wanda walking through that blasted, benighted coal landscape. I totally agree. Do you think John Waters saw Wanda before this? seems like the kind of thing you probably would have seen, actually, now that you say that. I don't know that he thought, ooh, I'm going to lift that for female trouble. But they are coincidentally kind of similar. Now, in this meeting with her father, we have our second penis close-up here. 
and the provocation this time is exponentially higher with this one because it's a father brandishing it at his daughter. And on top of that, let's just say it doesn't look like the healthiest penis in the world. Not what I would call aesthetically pleasing. Now that I think about it, though, they are kind of similar because way back with Gator, even though he's her stepfather, he invited her to come suck his dick. I don't really have more of an observation <laughs> around that. Well, Taffy doesn't either. She stabs her father to death. She's seen enough. And it was at this juncture <laughs> that I was acutely aware of how often I had to keep reminding myself that not everyone will love this. You're crazy. That, that can't possibly be true. Everyone in the universe has to adore this movie. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there are at least a handful of people that might find this off-putting, weird, or disturbing. It doesn't skew as far outside the box now as it did then, maybe. Or am I just so close to it that I have no idea what the average filmgoer wants to see or how they would react to this? If we walked into Chili's right now and grabbed 20 people at random and made them watch this, how far do you think they would get into it? I really don't know. I'm more afraid that one of those 20 people would probably be that guy who was jerking it in the car <laughs> next to your van way back then. Yeah, it's sort of impossible for me to pin down exactly how I feel like this would go now. The way the pendulum has swung in just the last couple of years, I don't know if this movie would seem more bold now, five years ago, or in 1974. But to be outrageous and so over the top, so absurd, and so defiantly queer on top of everything else, I don't think we could go into a Chili's at any time, maybe, and grab 20 people at random, and they, at least the majority of them, would enjoy it or even make it all the way through. It's a good point, and I think back to our discussion about trash cinema and the differences in what we might see today, what those people might be more used to if they were to think of trash cinema. Being mainly lowbrow or gross out or just dumb, and that is not something that John Waters traffics in. Dumb, definitely not. The other two you could debate, but if he does, it's specifically for a good reason. Because he's smart enough to know, and he has said he thinks he has great taste. You have to have great taste to be able to recognize bad taste. My point, I guess, is for me, the thing I have to remind myself as a viewer, I'm so enamored of this that I have to take a step back on a regular basis and remember not everyone lives in this world, nor do they want to. Thankfully, none of those people are in this room. <laughs> now, from the patricide, we move into... The single crowning glory of this film. My favorite moment. The thing I've been thinking about every day since we saw it. And that is Dawn gleefully dancing and posing and striking poses down the street. All to a funky tune. That tune is Dig by Nervous Norvis, by the way. A fantastic song. Amazing. So good. So good. It's one of those things, again, that I love about John Waters. You can tell... He likes B-sides. He likes to dig around in the bins full of records and any other thing that nobody wants and rescue and rehabilitate even these old 45s. You also left out the fact that she's wearing that skin-tight leopard print dress. One shoulder, by the way. <laughs> this is what I had referenced earlier. When she's doing this, no one on the streets of Baltimore is paying any attention to this goddess. Divine certainly merits a showcase like this 
every time out. There's a similar scene to this in Pink Flamingos with The Girl Can't Help It by Little Richard, but I like this one better. That one is supposed to be kind of slinky and sexy. This one is just so exuberant. And again, because I came to more late period John Waters, and of course Hairspray was Divine's last film, I didn't get to see how wonderfully he moves. He's just a fabulous physical actor and comedian at the same time. While Dawn is strutting herself around the streets of downtown Baltimore, Taffy has gone and joined the Hare Krishnas. Which is really the greatest crime she could commit. <laughs> Maybe second greatest, because she also frees Ida from her birdcage. Having done all this, she goes for a final confrontation with her mother, who chokes her to death right before she goes on stage for that evening's big performance. She's put a pretty amazing nightclub act together. And she's all hopped up on liquid eyeliner. Absolutely. It's a night of beauty and crime, and Variety Show doesn't begin to define what happens here. There's high-flying aerial acrobatics on a trampoline. There's masturbation with a fish. There are feats of strength tearing the phone book in half. I'm so beautiful I can't stand myself. It's all sauciness and kicks and grabs and, at this point, full-on sexualization. All of the crotch rubbing the thrusting. and the thrusting and the grabbing. I do want to point out here, again, I'm talking about how great physically Divine is. John Waters took Divine to a Y so that he could practice this trampoline act without losing his wig. <laughs> that wig is rad, by the way. I love this mohawk. It is wonderful. What an amazing twist. Well, just when you think this show has everything, the grand finale is beyond the pale. In her unbound desire to be crime personified, Dawn begins firing into the crowd, shouting, Who wants to be famous? Who wants to die for art? And the scramble to escape is pure pandemonium. There is one volunteer, though. <laughs> I do true. hear one voice say, I do, and get shot for it. A detail that I often think gets missed or glossed over is that when the police come in to help, they also begin to massacre innocent audience members. It's this scene in the theater and details like that that kept bringing me back to Natural Born Killers was what it made me think of. That was a film that I liked a lot when I initially saw it, but that doesn't hold up for me anymore at all. It came out when I was 24, and I think it's very much the kind of thing that appeals to a 24-year-old person. Waters and Oliver Stone were satirizing similar things, but only one of the movies continues to work for me, the other doesn't, and I think the big difference is that John Waters has a sense of humor, and Oliver Stone thinks he has a sense of humor. If he could give us any advice, John Waters would probably say, I suspect, not to take everything so seriously. He might even find it laughable, or at least amusing, that we're spending this much time today here looking at female trouble this closely. I see both sides of that, but I think I would be remiss, at least, if I didn't acknowledge the impact it had on me and how it takes on a greater significance and context over time. It means a lot to me, and even more to a lot of other people. It's made my life better, and I only saw it for the first time a few days ago, and I would be poor if I had not. Speaking of having a sense of humor, as so many other of these scenes have harkened back to incredible movie moments or genres, this is full-on fleeing the police through the woods. We might as well be in the Louisiana bayou as she tries to get away. But she's cornered, and they've got her. 
They put her on trial as one last bastion of square authority to rebel against the courtroom. And she's found guilty, and she embraces this, ultimately. It's an opportunity for a show-stopping final performance. Her big moment in the electric chair. She latches onto this with gusto. I'm sorry, can I step back for one second? Another one of those great details. Dawn's last meal is veal cutlets, and that's because John Waters' mother made veal cutlets and he hated them. He says his last meal would be a single leaf of arugula because you lose control of your bowels when you die. We have another movie callback here, and this is full-on women in prison with a lesbian love interest. It made me think of one very specifically, and it's not one of these women in prison movies. Everything for her at this point is focused on this last fleeting moment of fame. My life is the show. Celebrity and fame are everything. Quote me, look at me. Natural Born Killers might have been a more obvious connection, but I kept making a connection here that might not be the first thing that naturally springs to mind. Imagine if you will. A couple years down the road, after her conviction for killing Joe Gillis, sitting in her cell on death row, how different from what we see Divine doing is what Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard would be doing. Because I feel like Don's acceptance speech is just an expansion of, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. I had never thought about that, and I think that's great. Because she has verged into the territory of delusional, and yet very aware at the same time. And then it's over. Freeze frame on Don's contorted, electrocuted face. The end. Cue that song again. That great theme song, by the way. John Waters wrote the lyrics for it, and it was already a produced piece of music. So I think you've probably hinted at it, if not outright stated it, but what is your final verdict? Because we talked about trash cinema at the top of the show, something that I think I have at least a slightly greater fondness for than you. It doesn't all work for you, I think, right? So what sets this apart from other films with a similar aesthetic or quality of production or performance that you wouldn't be as interested in watching? I didn't know going in that this was going to be so funny. It is from start to finish. It is just incredibly hilarious. It also seems so much smarter than what I would imagine this other trash film in my head would be. So it's good at dismissing preconceived notions? Is that what you walk away with? Or maybe I just dismiss my preconceived notions? Thankfully, though, you've alluded to this, it didn't include those things that really do turn me off, for lack of a better term. Well, then we've got some work to do. It doesn't have anything that's just so gross that does make me want to throw up, even though that would be a compliment to John Waters. And I just love all the points that we hit. Teenage delinquent, mugger, prostitute, unwed mother, child abuser, fashion model, murderous, jailbird, all with an incredible flair and elan that I don't think you will see anywhere else. It's not lowbrow humor because you're too stupid to write highbrow humor. It's not shock for the sake of shock. John Waters talked about how hard an act to follow Pink Flamingos was, and that all of his humor is based on nervous reactions to anxiety-provoking situations. What an incredible basis to make this film. And also, I just didn't know it was going to be so perceptive. I didn't know Divine was going to be so divine. It is truly, I think, the best thing I've seen all year. 
Well, what a great high note to go out on then. I guess it probably won't make your ants list because it got its own solo episode here, but it ranks that high. It was, and I don't put my ants list in order, but if I did, it would be number one. I think I chose it for a slightly different reason than you, although I do echo everything you say there because of when I came to it. I was much younger when I saw it the first time, and I was so taken with what is essentially a veritable symphony of beautiful weirdos. The world needs more art that reminds people that it's okay to not be like everyone else, that helps them realize that you can actively choose not to buy what you're being sold. That thing I was saying earlier about helping people find and or make the family they want and the world they would like to inhabit, that's what this film does in a small way. You may not have people like this or just like-minded people, period, in your immediate vicinity, but you can access that through film. You may not be completely ready for this movie the first time you watch it, and that's okay too. It will be out there waiting for you when you are. I also chose it because I really do think it is the funniest of all of those early films. In fact, of his entire career, probably. We laughed so much together watching this. He said it's definitely his favorite of his early films, and it was Divine's favorite, period. Well, I feel good aligning myself with Divine then, because I think it's an excellent choice. In addition to that, there's one other big thing. I often deride the cheap use of irony, but I think this is a great example of irony used properly. Irony as detachment, as a way to distance yourself from feeling or experience something, that is bullshit. John Waters uses irony to connect to things, not to disconnect from things. I truly love him for that, and for many other reasons. I only met him once, by the way, and he was exactly how you imagine him to be. He was so kind and genuine with everyone and amused by everything. It was great. And speaking of great, I am sure you have a great recommendation for us. What is that? I struggled because I was trying to find another film with a bunch of trashy ladies in it, but nothing seemed quite right. So as I've continually done in this episode, I went back to John Waters himself and I picked one of his favorite movies. Because, like him, I love a feel-bad movie. So I chose Carol from 2015, directed by Todd Haynes, with Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, and Sarah Paulson. It's adapted from Patricia Highsmith's novel, and it is about an aspiring photographer who develops an intimate relationship with an older woman in 1950s New York. It's exceptional, and I think you feel the same. Oh, yeah. It was on my top 10 for 2015 without a doubt. Maybe top three, now that I think about it. Not just because it looks beautiful and moves at a pace that is intimate and steely and seductive and heartbreaking. Not just because it's exceptionally acted. Not just because it's a period piece that feels of its period and yet immediate. But watch it for all of those reasons. You can check out lists of John Waters' favorite films in a number of places, those that range from terrible to awesome and back again. How about your recommendation? I didn't get all as highfalutin as you did. Since we are on the subject of trash cinema, I chose a towering masterpiece of the genre, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 1970, directed by Russ Meyer, written by Roger Ebert, and starring Dolly Reed, Cynthia Myers, Marsha McBroom, John Lazar, and Edie Williams. It's a sequel in name only, pretty much, to Valley of the Dolls, and is about an all-girl rock band that goes to Hollywood to make it big, but 
Fortunately for us, all they find is sex, drugs, and sleaze. I will never forget the mind-bending time I first saw this, most especially the ending. It definitely passes the never-seen-anything-like-it test. It is just so much. I can't think of any other better way to describe it. It's sexy, it's deranged, it's funny, it's hallucinatory, it's violent, it's melodramatic. The best word I can think of is just excess. If you want a candy-colored, super horny, kind of scary celebration of excess, then you have got it made with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Carol and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And that brings us to the end of episode 93. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support the show, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays, alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We just did a mini-episode on Cash on Demand. That had a budget in 1961 of about 37,000 pounds. The budget for Female Trouble, $25,000. Compare those two and see where that dollar and that pound went. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Tim Lego, Primo Lamar, Spencer Seams at the High and Low Podcast, the fine gentleman of Fuds on Film, Doug McCambridge at Good Times Great Movies, The Front Porch Swingers, and Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemarried. If you're sharing the show or talking about it, please make sure and tag us so that we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally... You can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 